this is Anna Callahan, and you are listening to Incorruptible Massachusetts. Our goal is to help people understand state politics. We're investigating why it's so broken, imagining what we could have here in Massachusetts if we fixed it, and reporting on how you can get involved. Today, I'm interviewing Representative Mike Connolly. Mike Connolly is the state rep from the 26th Middlesex District, representing parts of Cambridge and Somerville, and he's been serving in the legislature since 2017. Rep Connolly has been most active in areas of housing policy, having introduced a comprehensive housing for all legislative agenda earlier this year, including legislation to repeal the statewide ban on rent control. He also has been active in supporting organized labor, calling for a Green New Deal, and advocating for new progressive revenue to fund big investments in transportation and education. At the beginning of this episode, uh, Mike says, it's good to be on the program. And then you'll hear me laugh because this is before I thought this would be a podcast. That idea was still forming. Uh, and Mike Connolly was gracious enough to have a nice long chat with me about progressive politics. You'll also have to excuse the audio quality, which is not quite as good as in the other episodes after I had got some better equipment. Mike gets into some real details about what it is like to be a state's legislator. And he says something really telling about Massachusetts state politics, that our legislators are progressive as long as wealthy individuals and big businesses are not impacted. Did you know that Massachusetts ranks sixth in billionaires per capita? That's billionaires with a B. This, I suspect, is the real reason why we have such concentration of power in the Speaker of the House. It's a whole lot easier for these billionaires to buy out a small number of politicians, one speaker and a few cronies, than to spend on every one of 160 elections every two years. Well, without further ado, here is my interview with Mike Connolly. Uh, Good morning and uh, welcome to Union Square. Right on. Sounds good. So um, it is my great pleasure to be sitting here with Mike Connolly, one of our absolute most progressive state representatives here in Massachusetts. Um, so thanks so much for, for joining me. Thank you so much. It's, it's uh, an honor to be um, on the program here. <laughs> awesome. I have a number of questions for you, and I, I know we won't get to all of them, but I'm going to start off with the question, what is it like to be a state rep? So, so sort of a day in the life, or as you were mentioning to me, maybe it's easier to describe a week in the life of a state rep. Absolutely. Well, it's, you know, it's truly um, an honor. It's, for me personally, it's really been a dream come true uh, to serve our communities, Cambridge and Somerville, in the Massachusetts State Legislature. Um, And really, I I, I didn't grow up thinking I would be a legislator necessarily. Um, But for me, it became a matter of just looking at politics, you know, watching MSNBC, reading the newspaper, seeing issues in my community, and really not feeling like the Democratic Party was the Democratic Party that I thought the Democratic Party was. I thought the Democratic Party was a party that would fight for poor people, for low-income people, for anyone um, who is disadvantaged in life. Um, but then as I you know, grew up and um, started to look at you know, the circumstances in our country and in our state, I really started to doubt that, um, you know, our government was working. And of course, I know I'm not alone. I think, you know, lots of people feel this way. And so that's really what motivated me uh, to do this work. And so to answer your question, um, 
you know, it's truly humbling and it's an honor to be in a position where I get to work with uh, constituents, advocates, colleagues um, to try to move our state in the right direction. Uh, in terms of, you know, like a week in the life, um, you know, Mondays and Fridays tend to be days where um, I'm more focused on district uh, meetings and events. We're meeting here today on a Friday morning. Um, and then Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays tend to be much more focused on the State House. Um, of course, you know, we live in, I live in Cambridge, you live in Somerville. We have to remember um, there are legislators coming from the Berkshires, there's legislators coming from the Cape. So for that reason, you can imagine uh, the State House tends to really focus its activities in the middle of the week because it's just impossible for some of those representatives to come in and do business five days a week. In the House of Representatives, uh, we reserve Wednesday as the main day that we look to have full formal House sessions. And as a result, uh, usually that means Tuesdays and Thursdays tend to be days where committee business um, is most often scheduled. Although those are just general rules of thumb. You know, if we're taking up a very significant piece of legislation, then it's very likely we might meet for several days in a row. Likewise, when we're approaching sort of deadlines in the session, you know, we could meet for several days, you know, on end, morning, noon, well into the night. Um, also, in addition, sometimes committee hearings can be scheduled on a Monday or a Friday as well, but that's sort of the general outline. Um, in terms of a typical day, there really hasn't been anything like a typical day. Um, and as a matter of fact, you know, the abhorrent presidency of Donald Trump has uh, significantly, I think, added to the chaos. You know, I might wake up in the morning thinking, okay, my focus today is going to be housing legislation, and then it might flash over the news that Donald Trump has found, found a new way to attack immigrants, and now my phone is ringing from uh, advocates in the community who are worried about what they're hearing, and they would like you know, us to assist in supporting um, a response to the latest threat of the day. And this has actually happened repeatedly. I um, have you know, sort of the unfortunate, interesting um, circumstance of, you know, I started my service in public office. It coincided with the beginning of the Trump presidency. So really all I've known as a state rep, there were three beautiful weeks where I was in office and Trump wasn't. But uh, basically all I've known is this Trump presidency, and so that has made it particularly chaotic. You know, I mean, when Trump, you know, says that uh, both sides are responsible for Charlottesville, and then, you know, a massive rally is planned, you know, um, to respond to Trump's ignorance and his hatred, you know, that can very quickly start to change my schedule from what I thought I was doing. Um, you know, it's definitely uh, evenings are usually where I'll focus on, you know, community meetings, so I'm very active in wanting to attend land use meetings, wanting to attend meetings um, from various advocates in our community. Uh, and then on the weekends, you know, um, of 
course, I you know spend time with my wife um, as I'm able. Often we will look to use Saturday as like our day together um, and try to do something fun. And then typically on Sundays, I'm back to uh, doing an activist type thing. Uh, this particular Sunday, for example, I'm organizing a canvas in East Cambridge to try to resist the sale of a state-owned uh, courthouse facility to a large commercial real estate developer. Um, and of course, you know, uh, and I'll wrap this up because I sounds like I'm just rambling. Um, but of course, you know, there's also uh, my my phone, right? Which uh, it's really, I mean, I think it's really cool in a way. It, it is a challenge to keep up with because I will be hearing from constituents on Facebook Messenger, on you know Twitter, on uh, just regular Facebook posts, on text messenger, on my state house email, on my personal email, on my uh, political campaign email. So constituents are reaching out to me morning, noon, and night. And personally, I love it. You know, I think it's really amazing. Uh, particularly me being someone who came into politics really with the mindset of an activist. So I have a uh, complete understanding and you know kinship with any activist who's wanting to connect with their state legislator. So um, all day long, you know, I'm hearing from people. Uh, often people will read an article. It might directly have to do with something we're doing in the district, or it could just be a general national level article about an issue. And people will send me things with their ideas. And frankly, it's amazing because uh, we have so many committed, intelligent, uh, insightful people in Cambridge and Somerville. You know, that's where I get ideas to file bills. That's where I start to develop my positions or in these different conversations. Um, I'll also add, you know, I, I make a regular practice of doing office hours in the district. Um, we started off doing them uh, every other week on Friday mornings, and then, uh, and that, that's been very successful. We also heard from folks who, you know, pointed out that not everyone is available on a Friday morning. So from there, we've started to sort of diversify our times, um, and you know, we'll do some in the evenings, we'll do some uh, weekdays, weekends, that sort of thing. And we do those meetings all over the district. So we'll meet at Loyal 9 in East Cambridge. We'll meet at the Senior Center um, in East Somerville. We'll meet at the Public Library uh, in Central Square. We'll meet at Work Bar in Central Square. And so that's also been another opportunity to engage with folks. And finally, the last thing I'll say is, as you know, and as everyone who knows me knows, I'm six foot eight. So, and we're a very densely populated, compact district. So just walking to get a coffee or walking to get groceries means constituent meetings, um, which again is really wonderful. I mean, I, I appreciate it. I love uh, the fact that I get to hear from people. I get to let people know what I'm doing. Some of the best work I do is just me off doing an errand, bumping into a constituent and us you know, uh, catching up on, on, on an issue of importance. So that's sort of a, a rough outline of, of, of what it's like. Yeah, that's, it's amazing. I, I, I can't imagine being pulled in so many directions. Um, but, uh, but I think part of why you're so great is, is your ability to really focus on the issues that are the most important. And I'd love to dive into that. Like, what issues, what's an issue you think at the state level is not getting enough 
Um, I think uh, revenue and housing, I would say, are the two issues that I've dug into the most, uh, particularly this term. And the reason why, you know, uh, is because I think those are the two areas where we've had the biggest need for leadership. You know, I've worked uh, extensively on climate justice, I've worked extensively on reproductive freedom and access to abortion, uh, I've worked extensively on transportation issues, and you know, as I came into my first term and I was working on a lot of things, I think what I started to realize was, okay, you know, in the area of climate justice, we have, you know, a dozen legislators all leading on, you know, incredible initiatives, you know, to get us to zero carbon emissions, to, you know, come up with environmental justice community um, provisions. And then you start to realize, okay, you know, I can be a supportive role on that issue because we have leadership. Then when I, you know, when I looked at the issue of housing and when I looked at the issue of revenue, what I concluded was there is a need for a lot more leadership. And so, you know, this session, I think what I've done is I've really tried to um, provide more leadership in those areas uh, where I felt like it was most needed. And I'm really gratified to say I've seen some real progress. So for example, one of the things I've talked a lot about uh, is this idea that our state is in an ongoing program of austerity. And uh, when I came into office this year, I filed legislation to raise billions of dollars in new revenue by looking to ask the wealthiest households and looking to ask big business to pay their fair share in taxes. And to be clear and to be sure, our state uh, has an upside down tax system where lower income residents pay a larger percentage of their income in taxes than the wealthiest residents pay uh, in taxes. And uh, when we started this session, it was not at all clear where that might go. And so I'm proud to say that, you know, as a result, I think, of uh, collective advocacy, at present, the Speaker of the House has committed to having uh, what's, what his leadership team has described as a robust debate on new revenue this fall. And, you know, that's been uh, a painstaking process day in, day out filing legislation, you know, getting into the media, meeting with colleagues, meeting with advocates. Um, and so I'm looking forward to that, and I think that's a real opportunity for us on the left. Um, yeah, if I can interrupt you, I, I want to ask a little about that, because yeah. so many states, like Kansas is like one of the biggest examples, Kansas, Oklahoma, some of these states that have been really led by Republicans for a long time now, are completely bankrupt. Like they've, they've just totally gutted all of their, um, you know, social programs. Yeah, and so unfortunate. So I'm, you know, what I'm curious to hear from you, if there are any states that you look to that are maybe on the other end of the spectrum, right? States right. that we can look to for good revenue programs, for, um, you know, their ability to bring money into fully fund state programs. Yeah, I mean, um, there's, I, I think, where I would go with that is on a specific issue that I've been working on, which is capital gains taxation. Um, in Massachusetts, 80% of capital gains income goes to the top 1% of households. 
3% of capital gains income goes to the bottom 80% of households. So if we want to raise revenue in a progressive fashion, this capital gains uh, tax rate is a very uh, powerful tool that we can use. Here in Massachusetts, we tax capital gains income at the same rate that we tax wage uh, and salary income. Uh, wage and salary is known as Part B income on our, on our taxes. Capital gains is known, long-term capital gains is known as Part C income on our state taxes. And, um, you know, as I'm sure you can appreciate, there's something inherently inequitable about saying that the person who's pouring the coffee or cleaning the floor who's is working for who's, the money. who's working for the money, exactly, will be taxed at the same rate as, you know, some, you know, billionaire investor who is sort of sitting back and collecting what, you know, we would describe as unearned income. So, and, and currently that rate is around, you know, 5.05% uh, um, for both earned income and unearned income. And so to answer your question, a state like California taxes capital gains at nearly 13%. States like Oregon, uh, you know, New York, Vermont, Maine, um, a lot of different places, some of which we probably think of as progressive, some of which we might even be surprised, tax capital gains in the ballpark of 8%, 9% or so. And so the opportunity that we have to raise progressive revenue via capital gains is pretty enormous. And so uh, that would, you know, that'd be my answer is that absolutely we can look to different states. I would recommend highly to anyone who wants to understand this issue and related issues to check out uh, a group called the Mass Budget Policy Center. I believe their website is massbudget.org. And they are an independent, um, you know, think tank that really analyzes our fiscal policy. And they've done a lot of work to really show that that, you know, that so-called Taxachusetts uh, moniker is a complete myth. And when you add up, you know, all the different ways we pay taxes in Massachusetts and you compare it to all the different ways other states pay taxes, that we are, you know, nowhere near the high end when it comes to taxation. Well, as far as maybe I'm taking this to a more general question, um, everybody thinks of Massachusetts as this high, you know, one of the most liberal states in the country and um, or progressive or whatever you want to phrase it. What do you think? Do you think that Massachusetts is in fact one of the more progressive, the most progressive states, or do you think there are places where we could improve? You know, I think we are quite progressive as long as to the extent that very wealthy individuals and big businesses are not impacted, you know? I mean, we were first, you know, to allow uh, gay marriage, um, but when it comes to funding public education, you know, we are failing our constitutional mandate to do that. Um, so, you know, we, I think we can be very progressive except when we touch on wealthy interests. And at that point, we become conservative. And I think it's so important for us to you know, recognize that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that, I think, has become the battle of, of today, right? Right. At the national level, at the state level, at the local level. Um, the, the old red versus blue 
conservative versus liberal on social issues is no longer the battle that we're in. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's this word, and I use it a lot, you know, the working class, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's the recent campaign that's been ongoing, the poor people's campaign, you know, issues of, you know, class struggle, issues of uh, economic, you know, issues concerning the poor, in a lot of ways, these have been invisible in the Democratic Party. You know, you know, under Bill Clinton, you know, we became a party sort of obsessed with the middle class, while, you know, the average family of color in the Boston area has a net worth of $8. Um, and we have to really recognize that, you know, we're not a nation of temporarily embarrassed millionaires, as some people have said. You know, we're a nation of, you know, tens of millions of people who have absolutely nothing. And that's completely, uh, you know, immoral. And it's also just dumb. You know, it costs more to be poor, and it costs government more to have people who are uninsured, who are unhoused, who are uneducated. And let's go to housing, as I know that's the other thing that, yeah. you, that you're really interested, not just interested in, but you're pushing a ton of housing legislation right now. Yeah, so I introduced a um, housing for all legislative agenda, and uh, it's definitely been well received. It's uh, We've received co-sponsorships from dozens of legislators. Uh, it's received some good press. Um, and really, the idea around this agenda is to try to really drag, you know, Democrats and those of us on the left, uh, you know, to a place that I think, you know, we are with other issues. And so the way I talk about it is, you know, as Democrats, as progressives, as leftists, you know, um, everyone agrees, I think, when it comes to health care, government will play a central role in making sure everyone has health care. When it comes to education, you know, we all agree on the left. Government will play the central role. Everyone has education. And of course, as a matter of fact, you know, Massachusetts has been a leader in universal health care, and Massachusetts was the sort of inventor of universal public education. Um, and, you know, then you get to housing, and Democrats and, you know, and even people who identify as progressives are all over the map, you know, and there are those who are, you know, progressive and who strongly, you know, fight for market-oriented solutions, and they will tell you, you know, I'm a progressive, and if you don't uh, comport with the demands of this market, then you are anti-housing, and you don't care about poor people, and you don't care about people of color, the only way you can achieve housing is to work with this market. And of course, my take is, well, this market's broken. This market it's is unjust. And, you know, I'll, I'll put it to you this way, by the way. If we had true equality, if we had, like, you know, true equality in a, you know, in a government that wasn't influenced by, you know, special interests, corporate interests, and a functioning economic system, then maybe the market would be, you know, a decent way to provide housing. The issue is, is that in this environment of profound wealth and income inequality, we need, you know, the government to play the central role in guaranteeing housing for everyone. Um, and other countries do this. It's and other countries This is nothing, do this. you know, yeah. totally wild, crazy. Yeah, there, there are models that we can take from that have been done for many decades. 
Right. And so, you know, basically the bottom line is, um, you know, I believe in what I'm working towards with this legislative agenda is that we need to be fighting and organizing around the principle of guaranteed housing for all. Um, and I think that's important because, you know, one of the things I've witnessed, particularly around housing, is that movements build up around individual tactics, you know? I mean, movements will build up around individual pieces of legislation. And that's great, but I feel like a lot of times what happens is, you know, there's reinventing of the wheel, or maybe even you win, and now it's like, you know, you were fighting for this bill and you won, and now you kind of go away. And so the, the concept that I've been working, you know, day in, day out, every opportunity I get, is to really try to uh, impress upon people the idea that we should call the movement housing for all, and we shouldn't be focused on any one playing field. You know, the housing for all movement, you know, today it might be going up to the state house to testify on a bill. You know, tomorrow it might be canvassing for a city council candidate. The next day, it might be showing up to an eviction protection action and trying to stop, you know, a corporate landlord from kicking a family out on the street. And, you know, we can't just settle for, you know, one tactic. You know, it comes around, you know, the issue of um, rent control. Uh, I'm working with Representative Nika Algardo and other advocates to uh, advance something we're calling the Tenant Protection Act it would repeal the statewide ban on rent control. Yes. And, you know, nevertheless, I think it's important to point out that I don't want us to just build the movement for rent control. Because even if we win, you know, we aren't building social housing, we aren't necessarily providing long-term permanent solutions, we would absolutely be providing, I think, uh, a necessary means of stabilizing tenancy, stabilizing communities, preventing catastrophic rent increases. But, you know, I think it's sometimes a little bit seductive to, uh, you know, pick one tactic and build the whole movement around that. Let's not lose sight of it. Let's just start from the place of saying every human in our society gets a place to call home. And then we work backward from there and say, what are the, you know, various tactics, legislation, strategies that will all support that goal. Awesome. Um, so one question that, uh, that I've been curious about is uh, if, there's, if there's anything that you've learned since being in the state legislature that you think maybe would be surprising to people. Like what about a state legislature is something that, you know, I mean, I imagine um, most people don't know hardly anything about the state right. legislature. I don't know that much. But like what's something where you'd be like, really? Oh, I didn't know that. Um, you know, probably several things, but, you know, sort of a factoid that I found surprising that I didn't fully appreciate until I got elected and started working on healthcare policy um, is how many people are on MassHealth in Massachusetts. You know, sort of, you know, a few years back and, you know, in my mind, I just sort of had this vague idea like MassHealth, you know, it's our Medicaid program, well, that's for the poorest residents. I bet it's about 10% you know, of our state is on Medicaid. It turns out it's closer to like one third of our state is on mass health. And I think that's really interesting when you start thinking, so we want Medicare for all, and I'm fully committed to Medicare for all and have been for uh, pretty much my adult life as long as I can remember. Um, 
if we're trying to get to Medicare for all, once you add up the people who are on Medicaid and the people who are on Medicare, I mean, you're getting darn close to, me and then you add up the people who are uninsured, you're getting darn close to Medicare for all. So, you know, I don't think we're as necessarily as far away from uh, a coherent, you know, single payer system than we might realize. So certainly that was interesting to learn. I, I have, as part of that, I learned that there are these folks out there called Medicaid migration specialists. And what they are is they go around and they find businesses that are doing the right thing and offering uh, health insurance to their employees. And they say, let us sit with you and we'll help you figure out how you can stop offering health insurance and how you can adjust scheduling and the hours in your workforce so that all of your employees will qualify for Medicaid and we'll help you and you know you can stop offering health insurance and maybe that means making some people who used to work full-time you cut them down to part-time oh now they'll God. qualify for Medicaid wow. and then you pay us a nice month, chunk of money for figuring this out for you oh. and so we have this activity going on where um, you know, businesses are intentionally trying to structure things to shuffle people over to Medicaid. And when I heard this, I, I, I made a quip um, in, a, in, a, in a meeting I was doing on Beacon Hill. I said, you know, if there are those Medicaid migration specialists, then maybe we as legislators ought to become Medicare for all migration specialists, <laughs> where we migrate our entire society over to a single payer system that we know would be beneficial. So, so that's one thing. I mean, I guess in terms of legislative nuance, I mean, one of the things that has struck me in terms of being a state rep is how many ways you can influence a process. And at the same time, sort of the flip side of that coin, how you're only really just one voice and how you can't really do it alone. And so, you know, there have been examples, uh, there have been times, for example, where, you know, let's say we're doing a comprehensive bill and, you know, we're in the House of Representatives and there's all different things in the bill and, you know, there's things flying into the bill, there's things flying out of the bill and, you know, it comes up for the final vote and in the end you look at the bill and you're like, okay, on the whole, I'm, I feel really good about what we're doing but there was this one thing in the bill I didn't really like, you know, that got put in there. And, and in this case, you know, I decided I'll vote for this bill because I think predominantly I like where we're going. But I really, it's, it's kind of, you know, it, it's keeping me up at night. It really bothers me that there was this one piece. And so, you know, what I've learned is, well, I pick up my phone and I call my senators. And I say, hey, you know, Senator Jalen, Senator DiDomenico, you know, maybe I'll call up, you know, some other folks around the state, Senator Eldridge. Um, today we worked on this bill and there was this one thing in there that's really driving me nuts. Heads up, when the bill comes to the Senate, work to get it out of there. And that can really work, you know. And so you start to find that um, you have, as a state rep, all these different ways and avenues where you can influence stuff. And that's really cool. And then again, on the flip side, you also find that there's very, very little that you know you're going to do, you know, independently solo. 
you know, you also need to be working with people. So it really is like a, just an ongoing process of trying to, as all, you know, at all times and as many times as you can, trying to just continue to, you know, push the right buttons, put the right info out there, you know, make the right moves and try to hang with it. Even if, you know, maybe on a particular day it feels like you're getting kicked in the teeth, sometimes you hang with it and then a month later, other people start to realize what you were trying to say a month ago, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, I want to follow up on that with my last question because okay. we need a lot more people on your side in the state legislature. We need to have a lot more progressives running for state rep seats. And um, so all of you, anybody who's listening to this, think about running for state. <laughs> think about yeah. running for state rep. And so my question for you is, no, am I right that you ran once and did not win, and then you ran and you won? Um, what What are your biggest takeaways in terms of what did you learn between the first and second? What would you recommend to somebody who's like, I'm going to do it, I'm going to run for state rep, and I'm going to be there to help Mike? Uh, great question. So, yeah, our first ran in the year 2012. Um, I ran as an independent. And uh, it's interesting. If you got a minute, I'll indulge you with a, uh, a digression. You know, I grew up believing in the Democratic Party. I was a lifelong Democrat. And as I mentioned earlier, I've also, for as long as I can remember, um, wanted a single-payer health care system. Uh, and so put a pin in your question. It's great, but now I'm digressing. <laughs> you can edit this if you need to. Um, but, of course, after Obama got elected, I recognized, well, you know, the United States in the year 2009 isn't going to adopt a single-payer system, and then this idea of the public option emerged. And, you know, and to be clear, sitting here today, you know, I'm not going to be satisfied with a public option. But in the year 2009, I felt I really became enamored with this idea. Sure, thought, it, was, it was way better than the alternatives. Right. It was way better than what we have now. Exactly. And so I thought, wow this is it, this is everything, yes, we need to do this. And the Republicans said, whoa, 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 if you do a public option, you'll put private insurers out of business. And I'm like, well, I thought you guys cared about competition. It sounds like you can't compete (laughs) with the public option, so, you know, I guess we should be okay then. And so what happened was, as you recall, Obama won election, it was the most triumphant, you know, uh, political moment uh, we had seen on television. Um, you know, the Democrats controlled the House of Representatives, the Democrats controlled the Senate. Public opinion was saying that the public option was polling around 70%. Yeah. And when Barack Obama went around the country doing speeches to crowds of people to talk about health care reform, when he said the words public option, it was the most electrifying moment. There would be arenas of 20,000 people and they would be just going crazy when he said those two words. It was the most invigorating, exciting thing. And so sitting there thinking, wow, you know, the Democrats won the election, we control Congress, 70% of the public is on our side. You would think we're gonna get the public option. And then, of course, you know, the Senate Finance Committee, uh, Max Baucus was involved. I know John Kerry was on that committee at the time, I think. Somehow, it just sort of floated out of being possible, and, and it just became, it was politically impossible. And it was really that moment, I actually, I had, it was around the time I had finished up at law school, 
um, I marched down to City Hall and I, you know, and I said, you know, uh, I want to withdraw from the Democratic Party. I want to be an independent because, you know, what the heck? How is it that we've controlled all of government and we can't do the one thing that everyone says we want to do? So that's my aside. <laughs> so that then brings me to that's what really got me thinking. Wow, you know, the Democratic Party is lost. You know, I want to be an independent. I'm going to run, challenge a Democrat, run for state rep. So I did that in 2012. What I found in 2012 was that in this district, at least, and I and I'm guessing this is the case in many districts it's really not worth it in a lot of ways to run for state rep as an independent. And the reason being is, you know, uh, there's a couple of reasons. One reason is, you know, there's a chunk of voters out there who do feel a loyalty to the Democratic Party, and you can sit down and, and present your ideas with them, and they can say, well, we agree with you, but, you know, we're not going to vote for an independent. And of course, I think also in the year 2012, you know, the memories of the, the Ralph Nader, George Bush, you know, uh, Al Gore thing, even though I think that's been yes. portrayed in a uh, convoluted, you know, not accurate way, nevertheless, you know, those were still fresh in people's minds. And so there's that piece. And then the second piece is when you run as an independent, you're running in a general election. Um, which is a much larger base of turnout than a primary election. And so that ends up meaning, as an upstart grassroots candidate, you're forced to try to compete on a much bigger playing field. And so after doing that race in 2012, it dawned on me, why am I fighting both for my agenda, which is radical enough and will face opposition, and on top of it, automatically taking on all of the Democratic Party apparatus, why don't I just join the Democratic Party again and fight from within? And so in a lot of ways, you know, not to uh, brag, but I think I kind of figured out like the Ocasio-Cortez formula about a few years ahead of time. Because what I realized was, wow, if you have a, you know, a Democrat in name only, a conservative Democrat, or even a moderate Democrat in a progressive district, or a progressive Democrat in a leftist district, which I think you know our district, you know, definitely sustains leftist uh, ideology. Um, if you have that circumstance, it makes a lot more sense to just enter a primary and have that debate, because then if you win from there you're quite likely to then go on and, and prevail in the general election. So that was really one big thing I learned in my first race. Um, were there more parts to the question just, or anything just else? Just anything else you, you think that you know, well, people running should... I would say anyone who wants to run for office should reach out to Mass Alliance and participate in, you know, look to get involved in some of the trainings that they do. Um, they certainly imparted a lot of uh, you know practical advice for me, uh, and really, there's a lot to learn in terms of messaging, in terms of campaign strategy, uh, in terms of you know fundraising practices. Um, you know, to be clear, I don't raise money uh, from real estate interests or from you know corporate interests uh, or from 
you know, certainly fossil fuel interests, all those sorts of you know, health insurance executives, nothing like that. You know, I'm very sort of transparent in so far as um, I look to fund my campaigns on a grassroots way, largely with local support and, you know, looking to avoid all the sort of objectionable um, categories around real estate and, and fossil fuels and stuff like that. Uh, so I think go to, uh, you know, get involved with Mass Alliance, certainly follow Progressive Massachusetts. They have a, a scorecard that's gone back for many years. Um, and, you know, feel free to reach out to me, you know, because I'm always happy to chat with folks who are trying to, uh, you know, figure out how to get more involved. Wonderful. Thank you so much. This is really wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank <laughs> you.